Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the evil around us? Do you ever feel like insanity is winning? Do you struggle inside with aspects of your own sin that make you afraid of what you might or might not do under certain circumstances? Does it seem like perversion grows like weeds while the fruit of righteousness is more and more scarce? For instance, the average pedophile molests approximately 250 children in his lifetime. Of those victims, approximately 40% of them become pedophiles themselves without being discipled into that practice. No, one infection seems to be enough, like the vampire's kiss, to produce replicas of the original offender. On the other hand, therapists and counselors and psychologists and pastors go through years of education then must often add to that hundreds of hours of internship before being allowed to directly address suffering people and sadly seem to gain only slight progress, if any, over long years in certain circumstances. Something's wrong with that picture. It cannot be that the work of evil brings such a harvest while its antidote seems to be so weak. It doesn't sound like the way God would do things. The Western religious world, for the most part, is a mere shell of what the New Testament body of believers in Jesus was meant to be, though there are blessed exceptions, and increasingly so, by the way. We have allowed our own culture to deform us rather than living transformed lives in a way that leads to transformation around us. This is no fault of the gospel. In these days, together, we're going to try to examine the missing elements of the life of the Spirit that have been hidden in plain sight, but easily ignored due to the blinding force of culturally acceptable Christianity. That's a Christianity that is formed more by human thinking than by the Spirit and the Word. And by God's grace, we will embrace our full inheritance in Christ that will transform us and the world around us. The New Testament talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And we've been in church for more than a day in our life. We've heard some reference to the fruit of the Spirit. I want to read to you from Galatians chapter 5, and I want to use the message, Eugene Peterson's message, to do it. Because in some sometimes Peterson just hits the ball out of the park, and this is one of them. The message, <clears throat> Galatians 5.22 What happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same as fruit grows in an orchard. Affection for others, love. Exuberance of life, joy. Serenity, peace. We develop a willingness to stick with things, patience. A sense of compassion in our hearts, kindness. The conviction that basic holiness permeates things and people, goodness. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, that's faithfulness. Not needing to force our way in life, that's gentleness or humility. 
able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. That's self-control. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good, crucified. Much of even Christian culture is infected with the lies of the world system, such as, for one example, Freudian conceptions of our humanity. Freud infected the West with the false idea that our basic primal energy, uh, that which motivates all we do, is really the libido, the sex drive. But Freud was wrong. Our primal longing is not for sex. If we reject our true primal longing, or if it was denied us by human failure or stolen by evil, then all that's left are the primal appetites, food and other stimulants, sex, rage, or terror. That much is true. But our primary longing is not for those things. Our primary longing is for joy which is the offspring of love, and these two together produce peace. Joy. Let me give you a few definitions of joy. These are various definitions, and they all coalesce together. The overwhelming satisfaction of our deepest desires being met. That's one definition of joy. The energy that flows from being united with reality, feeling at home. Or the normal state of creatures when in right relation to their creator. Or the pleasure and security of children in the arms of their father. Or of loved ones being with each other. These are all definitions of joy. Now there's two levels of joy. There are two different but strongly related kinds of joy we will be examining here. The first one is human, psychological, biochemical, physiological joy. The second is transcendent, spiritual, supernatural, and ultimate joy. The first we can have here and we can even increase its presence and power within and around us. But the second is beyond our power. But it comes down to us in unexpected wooing whispers, calling us to itself, calling us to our true home. C.S. Lewis probably described this better than anybody has when he says, It is an unsatisfied desire that is more desirable than any satisfaction. It is the smell of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. Now, we often speak of nostalgia, which is literally the word nostalgia means to be homesick. It's homesickness, a wistful longing for people, places, or events that are in the past. Joy is similar to that, but it's in the opposite direction. Joy is a wistful, beckoning 
to us, not from the past, but from our future, where all the best longings of the past are seen in retrospect as mere shadows of the real goodness which is awaiting us in its full manifestation up ahead. This second level of joy is so great that it is painful to bear it and unbearable to lose it. The pain of it is more wonderful than any pleasure. We mistake it for romanticism or nostalgia or childish imagination. If we do that, we use those wrong definitions to hide the fact that there's something we do not have but which we are meant for and it is calling to us. Those who respond will find it. Those who reject the call eventually disintegrate into forms they were never created to participate in and they disintegrate into creatures they were never meant to become. We must Keep both of these two levels of joy in mind as we go forward. The first one is ours now and can be fully initiated and developed and protected. And by cooperating with the created order, which was given at creation, we call this common grace. We can enter into common grace. It's the pleasure of God that all creation do that. But the second, this higher dimension of that same grace, calling us further up and further in, is unlike the first level of joy, which we can learn to grow and develop. We cannot control or develop this higher force of joy. It comes as it wills, and if we try to capture and control it, it hides. If we try to re-experience it by replicating whatever it was that seemed to bring it, we will be disappointed. This higher joy is what calls us up and on towards heaven. The lower joy is what gives us the power to remain on earth, and we obviously need both. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, speaks of what I'm calling union versus disintegration. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears no fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he purges. Cathero in Greek, the word purge here, means to clean out all undesirable elements until there is nothing left of them. Would you like for that to happen to you? For for you to be cleaned out of all undesirable elements? Oswald Chambers speaks of this in one place where he says, how are we ever going to come to the place where we are no longer fearful, no longer selfish, no longer lustful, no longer petulant, no longer childish, no longer manipulative of other people unless we go through the process necessary to deprive us of those counterfeit ways of of existing. The reason Christianity as it is in our culture is so weak and so ineffective is because it never seems to occur to us that this is a real thing that's supposed to really happen to us and we're supposed to really engage and pursue the process of it uh, 
instead of just going to church now and then and reading our Bible and placating our uh, religious conscience by doing religious things in religious contexts. But God wants to take over every aspect of your personality, your life, your relationships, your money, your appetites, your sexuality, your hobbies, everything in life. He wants to manifest his goodness through. Not so he can be your dictator and controller, which so many seem stupidly to be afraid of, but because he's the only one that can make it function with life and joy in it and never lose it. So Jesus says, every branch in me that bears no fruit, the Father takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he, he purges cleans out all the undesirable elements totally so that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are purged through the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I will abide in you. The word abide is meno. It means to stay, endure, remain, wait for, stay with me, endure with me, remain with me, wait for me. Jesus says, 1 John 2.24, see to it that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, endures in you. Same word. That's how you remain in the Son and in the Father. Jesus goes on to say here in John 15, for just as the branch cannot produce fruit by itself, you cannot produce fruit unless you remain in, endure with, wait for, and stay with me. Stay with Jesus, then work on your stuff with him. See, you don't work on your stuff so that you can then go to Jesus. That's legalism. It's also useless because it doesn't work. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. That's what he says right here in the next verse. I am the vine, you are the branches. He or she that abides in me and I in him or her will bring forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. That's the one verse that I've proven more often than any other verse in the Bible, I think. Now, if a man or woman cuts off from me, then they become cast forth as a branch and they will wither and men will gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. I want you to notice something here. This is not a prophecy of hell. It says men will do this. Men will cast them into the fire. What's he saying there? If you don't abide in me, you become a man pleaser and you start running around trying to do things according to men's ways and men's pleasures and that you get burned. Men will burn you. Men will trample you underfoot. In another place, Jesus says, if you don't uh, abide in me, if you lose your saltiness, then you become good for nothing, and men cast you out and trample you underfoot because you've lost your saltiness. Well, here he says, if you don't abide in me, if you don't look to me and remain with me and endure with me and stick with me and know that I'm always sticking with you, even when you don't stick with me, I'm sticking with you, then you'll let men rip you off and you will wither under it and they will burn you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask what you will and it'll be done for you. In this my Father is glorified so that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
continue in that love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He says, just watch me and watch what I do and then just do with me what you see me do with the Father. These things I've spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might become full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, what is the fruit here? It is restored character. The fruit he's talking about is the life and love of God, which he intended that we should manifest. It is not productivity of ministry or good works that he's referring to here. Notice, too, the fire, I've already said this, is when men will throw us out if we fail to stay united with the true vine. Life, that's people and circumstances formed by people, destroys us if we refuse the life that is in union with Jesus. If we stay in Jesus, even the bad gets turned for our good, Romans 8.28 says. The message is, come to me, stay with me, don't focus on your lack of fruit. Being with me and resting there and learning to rest there and learning that I want you there and that you're always welcome there, whether you feel welcomed or not, has nothing to do with it. You rest in my word. My word is to you that you are loved, welcomed, and precious. And the fruit will automatically come if you believe that. And it'll start driving out the unfruitfulness. But what you do and what I do if we're under legalism is we try to clean ourselves up so Jesus won't hold his nose when we come in the room. And then we try to sing and dance fast enough to make him happy with us. What seems like purging, what seems like painful purging is really our healing. The painful purging is not because God's beating you because you're so disgusting to him. What's painful is that we cling to things that we think will give us life. That's why we cling to them. But they are not giving us life. They are killing us. So God has to pull that thing that's killing us away from us. But because we think it's giving us life, we think God is killing us. When God's not killing us, he's bringing us life. John 14, 21 through 23, let this get through. Whoever hears my commandments, my words, and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. Now, I used to read that and think, well, he, yeah, well, I, I don't love Jesus because I don't keep his commandments. That's not what he says here. He says, if you love my words and keep them, I've got a letter I carry around in my wallet that Mary wrote me. I keep it. I keep it. I carry it around with me. Now, legalistic religious people will hear me say what I just said and say, well, that's the problem, isn't it? We just carry our Bibles around, but we don't, we don't keep them. We don't keep them. Well, I understand what they're saying when they say that, but that, that's not the spirit of this. The spirit of this is if you love me, You'll pay attention to what I say to you, and you'll keep what I said to you 
as a keepsake in your heart. You'll keep that. That's who really loves me, and whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him or her, and I will manifest myself to him or her. And then he says, the whole purpose of this is so that the Father and I will come and make our abode with him or her. See, Okay, so only beginning and remaining in this revelation of the heart of Jesus for you will give you the strength you need to endure the pain that you will endure when you start getting purged of the stuff that's killing you that you think is making you happy. Okay, now, all of that is about joy. Joy is the biblical word that describes the energy that we need to get us through the battles we face on our journey to becoming like Jesus and whatever may happen in that journey. Uh, the word charis, we get the word charismatic, or grace, charis, gift. Grace is far more than unmerited favor. You hear that definition of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Well, unmerited means that we did not and could not earn it, so that's accurate. And favor, a giving love which is eager to bestow blessing. So let's put it together. Grace is not just unmerited favor. Grace is God's love eagerly bestowing blessings that we could not earn. Is that a little better than uh, unmerited favor? It's amazing how we can reduce incredibly wonderful things down to boring gray. Take all the color out of it. Anyway. Joy is the result of being loved, not because you earned it, but because the one loving you is happy to be with you. Joy is the result of being, as one wonderful teacher that I'm learning from on these subjects says, joy is the result of being the twinkle in someone else's eye. That's Dr. James Wilder's term. Infants once they can focus, stare at the right side of the face and the right eye of the right side of the face and the right side of the right eye. And what are they looking for? So in such a tiny little spot, that they're looking for that twinkle. Literally, that's they're looking for that twinkle. The force of eye contact is far more powerful than first thought. The right side of our brain interprets shades of meaning, tone of voice, and consistency of affection. Parents, listen, any of you parents out there right now, especially if you're young parents, or maybe if you're older parents, I know the pain that shoots through your heart when you hear what I just said. I am, I'm, I'm with you. I think, how many times was I inconsistent in my affection? And how many times was my tone of voice unloving? How many times did they get the shades of meaning from me as being negative instead of positive? 
I think I sometimes drive my children and grandchildren crazy, just lamenting some of my behavior. They, they'll, you know, they've forgiven me a lot better than I forgive myself. The only thing an infant responds to or looks for is that bond, period. It's what they were created for. That's the only thing babies are looking for is the shade of meaning and the tone of voice and consistency of affection that says you have a twinkle in your eye because they are loved by you just because they exist and they are where they're supposed to be. That's the reason for existing. And what I just described about babies is exactly <laughs> it's exactly what is true for you as adults. That's also what you are supposed to be looking for is that twinkle in your father's eye, so to speak, because that is what you were created for too. Nothing else matters. See, when we get to heaven, uh, let me say that differently, when heaven gets to us, because heaven is coming down more than we're going up, but when heaven is full in its reality on earth as it is in heaven, what are you going to do to find meaning in your life? If you're a policeman, we don't need any policemen. If you're a doctor, we're not going to need any doctors. and not going to need any counselors, Clay. You're not going to need any people who work at helping people overcome sinful behavior. That'll all be gone. And uh, those of you who find meaning in uh, rebuilding broken things, whether it's people or places, we're, we're going to be out of a job. See, the only meaningful activity of heaven is a party. Just one big, giant, continuous party. Now that party produces so much creativity that I'm not suggesting for one minute there won't be a whole lot of creative activity that comes out of that party. But all the, as C.S. Lewis says, the, the business of heaven is joy. That's the whole purpose. That's you know, joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, open to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the fear and do uh, of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. All thy works with joy surround thee. Earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing about the center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea, chanting bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in thee. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed. Wellspring of the joy of living, ocean depth of happy rest, thou our Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. Teach us how to love each other. Lift us to the joy divine. Mortals join the happy chorus which the morning stars began. Father love is reigning o'er us. Brother love binds man to man. Ever singing march we onward, victors in the midst of strife. Joyful music leads us sunward in the triumph song of life. If we really could get a hold of that on the heart level, I wouldn't need to do this teaching and you wouldn't need to listen to it. Just sing that song until it gets in the core of you and you'll have it. Now, 
the creation of man in the image of God, uh, as we learn more and more about the brain, all it does is just glorify the glory and wonder of the Creator more and more. Brain imaging sciences have been developed within the last 10 years or so that, that show, among other things, our brains were wired for joy. This was the divine purpose. The whole, your whole purpose for existence is joy. We respond to love, which awakens joy. Everything begins in love, but joy is the automatic results of it, which produces strength. Joy produces strength. This power of joy is what gives us the energy to launch into the further stages of life. To the degree we lack this joy, to that degree we die. When the brain does not find joy bonds forming, it sloughs off and rejects the tissue where joy should have been formed. The capacity then for wanting to be together and for looking for another who wants to be together with us is lessened greatly. This is why babies who don't bond go into what we've called uh, previously the schizoid, emotionally schizoid position where they've longed for connection and longed for connection and no one came and no one came and no one came and finally that hunger for connection is sloughed off even out of the brain casing and the capacity in the brain for bonding diminishes so the baby becomes unable to respond. That means the capacities for strength to endure the battles of life are equally reduced. Now, before you sink into despair at what I'm describing here, you need to keep listening. Don't stop there, for heaven's sakes. If, if, if that's all there was to it, we'd be better off to just shoot ourselves. There's a lot more to this story than this bad news. Keep going to the good news. The brain is created to function as a relational mirror showing three faces. Did you hear what I just said? The brain is created to function as a relational mirror. And that mirror was created to show three faces. It only knows itself in relation to the two other faces. Two faces won't work and one face won't work. See, we're made in the image of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This relationship structure, the brain is always looking for. It sees the relational world as a triangle in which one always looks at two others who are relating to each other. Baby is looking for mama and daddy, and baby is looking to see how mama and daddy relate to each other. In other words, the baby sees mom and dad relating to each other with baby as the third. Later, the baby sees himself or herself relating to mom as dad looks on. Then, as the development continues, they see themselves as relating to dad as mom looks on. But the entire organizing scheme of the brain formation is based on this revolving trinity in the psyche of the child. If the interaction is loving, the foundation will be sure. If the interaction is fearful, 
then disorganization occurs as the brain tries to reorganize new ways of coping. If love is happy that it knows us, we then can come to know ourselves. If fear is dominant from rancor or indifference or maternal fear, we will sink into non-being. Robert Riley writes in his uh, testimony, quote, When our children were younger, they used to think they would disappear if my wife and I removed our wedding rings. We never told them that, yet they intuitively understood that their very existence depended upon the love between my wife and me. They felt in their bones that they were incarnations of this love, and they therefore concluded that if this was broken, they would disappear. To this day, immediate excitement is generated in our home if my wife and I start hugging and kissing in front of them. The children spontaneously celebrate as if they sense in our affection the reaffirmation of their existence. They move towards us for a group hug as if they wish to share in the love of which they know they are the product. Now, all recent attempts to equate same-sex relationships as a marriage cannot compete with the phenomena described by Riley for obvious reasons. Now, before I go further, let me please stress that my purpose for bringing this truth in is not to uh, address same-sex struggles there are there's so much healing grace extended to those suffering same-sex attractions uh, that the church has been so irresponsible in not learning and not communicating. So for any person who may hear this who is uh, in a same-sex attraction situation, whether you are struggling with it or whether you have politically and psychologically and even theologically tried to embrace it, You just need to lay aside the emotional knee-jerk reaction to reality and hear the truth of what I just said, that that triad in the mind of the baby will not form properly if it's two mommies or two daddies. It, It can't form correctly. So, though I'm not addressing same sex, the healing of same sex, unmet same sex love needs here in this message, There's a lot that can be given to bring help and healing in the context of this very message that I'm bringing, though I'm not addressing it per se right now. So please don't tune me out uh, if you hear me saying what I'm saying and, and immediately interpret it as a polemic against you if you struggle with same sex attractions. Please try to endure. Uh, and hear the rest of the message without feeling that you're being rejected or alienated. There's hope for all of us, thanks be to God. Two males or two females cannot ever be the origin of a human being, so the child can never have the primal rejoicing mechanism turned on by the celebration of that child between two of the same sex. All the manipulations of scientific interference cannot fill the existential gap that would remain in that child. 
As the result of the union of two people, it will not fill my need to be told one of my true parents was merely a donor or a receptacle, but that their place is now filled with someone of the same gender as trying to be my other parent. The mysterious inner being of a soul that was conceived and birthed with no regard for God-ordained order of relationship will suffer under the weight of the question, what exactly am I the offspring of? Who is missing? What was he or she like? How will I ever know that part of me? Robert Oscar Lopez was raised by a lesbian couple, and he says, quote, It's disturbingly classist and elitist for homosexual men to think they can love their children unreservedly after treating their surrogate mother as if she is nothing more than an incubator, or for lesbians to think they can love their children unconditionally after treating their sperm donor father like a tube of toothpaste. Watch any little one in the presence of loving, joyful parents, and you will see their entire body tremble with joy, so powerful that it reaches a point of overwhelming pain if the joy doesn't stop. Now let me stop here and just interject that that is true also when you see, for instance, how a, how a baby boy responds to the presence of his father. The the hunger for same-sex union is just as powerful in its response to the potential presence, the presence of the potential father connector, uh, as it is in the way the child responds to mother and father together. Am I making any sense? Let me read that. I want to read that statement again. I really want you to get this. Watch any little one in the presence of loving, joyful parents, and you will see their entire body tremble with joy, so powerful that it reaches a point of overwhelming pain if that joy doesn't stop. Now, that's that's not only true of a baby in the presence of both parents. It's true of a boy, a little boy, in the presence of his father. And if you could see what's happening in the heart of a, of a little boy. This is true in both genders, of course, to some degree, but I want to really stress right now the issue of what happens in a little boy. If you could see that uh, going on inside the child's soul, then you understand if the father is not there for that boy, that overwhelming joy at his presence becomes an overwhelming agony at his absence. And if that absence is not met or at least mitigated and the sex drive awakens and the boy is in any way met on an erotic level by another male, then there's a false sense of that unbearable pain being satisfied by the same-sex union. And it is natural, logical, then, for homosexuality to seemingly be the result 
Uh, and they, that's just why they think, well, I've been, I've always been this way. I was born this way. There's, there's no way around it. I was born this way. So can I, can I get across to you clearly enough? I don't want to, I want to bore you with repetitiveness, but I really, really, we must get this. If we understand, uh, this is the genesis of so much same-sex deprivation and so much same-sex attraction. Uh, now, there are other elements, of course, that contribute to it. And, and that same reaction can be in the soul of a female child toward the father. But it's a little different in that the boy is trying to connect with that which is exactly like him, where the girl is trying to relate to the father as opposite of who she is, the boy is reacting to the very essence of his own gender identity and the very essence of his being. And so same-sex attraction has a primal energy in it that is way beyond what you and I would call normal other sex romantic attraction. In, in other sex attraction, when a boy and a girl are attracted to each other, it's being attracted to each other out of a solid sense of their own gender identity. But when a boy is still forming his gender identity and his very identity as a baby and as an infant and as a, a little version of his grown father, he's not just experiencing an attraction of a romantic level or erotic level He's experiencing an attraction for his very life existence, for his very identity, for his very being. It's more than identity, it's being. And God never intended the sex drive to have an element in it that tells you who you are. The sex drive should emerge out of already knowing who you are. And then out of who you are, you are attracted to your other. But when you don't know who you are and you're desperate to find it and it's been deprived, you've been deprived of it. And then the sex drive kicks in and all those hormones are awakened and you then are presented with a possibility of uniting with that which you've been starving for all your life and it's given to you in a sexual way then there is a whole cocktail of chemical confusion that's taking place on the physiological level, a whole firestorm of confused emotions that are awakened on the emotional and psychological level, and God only knows what's happening in the spirit realm. Does that? Oh, I hope you get that. I, I, I don't want to keep repeating myself. But... Uh, Watch any little one in the presence of loving, joyful parents, and you will see this entire trembling of body in the presence of their parents. But then you also you'll see it in the, in the boy in the presence of his father. So heterosexually, uh, that, that triune relationship is being exemplified. But then when it comes to same-sex identity and, and being, you see that same level of energy and need and uh, trembling in the child, the boy with his father. Uh, if, uh, just just watch some of the re 
review, review some of the videos of soldiers coming home to their children. Um, one in particular that just always moves me to tears is uh, about a 15, 16-year-old boy who's about to receive an award in front of his entire school. He's in, in the gymnasium. The whole school is present. That's This is the age when boys generally don't want to show affection or scenes of emotion in front of their peers. But unbeknownst to him, his father has returned from uh, Afghanistan and is standing behind him. So when the coach who's giving the award is about to place the award around the boy's, over his head, on his shoulders, he bypasses the boy and hands it to someone behind the boy. Well, of course, the kid immediately turns to see what's going on, and there he's face-to-face with his father. And he, in front of the whole school, they don't exist as far as he's concerned. He jumps up in his father's arms the way a, a little boy would, you know, arms around his father's neck, torso to torso, sobbing in his father's neck, his father holding him. This is this this is what is going on in homosexuality. See, in homosexuality, the absence of that, see, you, the absence of that bonding, the absence of that that need being met, has been perpetrated in our culture now for 40, 50, 60 years. And the hunger for that to be fed and met, the enemy has poured in homoerotic manipulation as the replacement for what I just described. This is why this is why when the church fails to address these things properly, the homosexual lobby that has been formed or quite often and I'm not excusing anything of what they do that is wrong but you, you begin to understand why the anger is so great they many of them went to their churches for help and there was no help there was clichés or there was condescension or there was hypocrisy because the church didn't take uh, responsibility for its own sexual sins heterosexually. There was no dealing with divorce, no dealing with abortion, no dealing with adultery, no dealing with premarital sex, no dealing with any aspect of sexual sin. Then all of a sudden, here's the homosexual issue, and it's the, it's the only issue that uh, you know there's any moral reaction against. And these kids are not only angry because of the hypocrisy, but they are enraged on a primal level because they see themselves being shoved out of life. They are responding the way someone would respond if they were being suffocated. Uh, The violence and the, the, the physical, visceral reaction to try to gain footing so they can survive, so they can live. That is going on in uh, the psyche of the pro-homosexual movement. Yes, in some cases it's nothing more than lust and celebration of evil, but don't take refuge in pointing at the that fact while ignoring the failure of the church to minister grace and wisdom and help to the same-sex-deprived child who is dying from that absence. I just described to you that the, the, I really don't have words to describe it adequately. The, the power of bonding 
and what happens when that bonding is not available. And see, a wounded soul uh, will take stimulants, or, of course, what's the greatest stimulant? Pornography and, and orgasmic uh, self-satisfaction is one of the greatest drug stimulants in the world. A wounded soul will take stimulants to attempt to supply a replacement for joy or take depressants like alcohol as an unsuccessful replacement for peace. Many do both because they so lack both. You see, when there's when when, when you're able to rest in the arms of the one you were created to, to rest in, on the physical level, it's a boy in his father's arms. There's not only love welcoming him and joy at the reality that you are home, you are where you're supposed to be, but then there is peace, shalom, wholeness, fullness of being. The Hebrew word does not ever mean absence of trouble, but it means fullness of joy. And that's true psychologically as well as spiritually. So a wounded soul will take stimulants in the attempt to supply itself the replacement for joy or take depressants like alcohol as a replacement for peace because both are so badly lacking. And the cycle takes them up and then down, up and down in a descending pattern of disintegration. Now, there is... Let me just say this in closing. We only have a few more minutes, and I want to try to get this in. Joy has the power to sustain us in sorrow. So joy and sorrow are not opposites. There is a joy in sorrow. Now, of course, you say, well, sure, we know that. Most Christians know that, but I don't, I don't know if we know it on the level we need to know it. We don't communicate it very well if we do know it, uh, but we're doing better. We're going to learn better. But uh, joy is the foundation that we have to have to come into maturity. This is why we have so much immaturity, so much retardation of development uh, and all the brokenness that goes with that. And... Uh, Joy is the, is the power that gives me the energy I need to endure sorrow. I've said this already, but I'm going to say it again. To endure the sorrow that I have to go through that will bring me then to a greater joy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, for instance, he says, In all our troubles I have great joy. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 Count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials and temptations. I used to read that verse and I just felt aggravated by it. I said, oh, well, it's just a dumb religious phrase. Of course, I wouldn't say that out loud, you know. I just think it. Well, that's stupid. No, it's just my lack of understanding of what the Holy Spirit's saying. Luke six twenty-two and 23 Jesus says, rejoice when men reject you and leap for joy when uh, you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Psalm 126, verse 5, they who sow in tears shall reap 
in joy. Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There's a direct connection to the weeping and the joy. It's not that, well, you're weeping and have no joy, and then the next day you are joyful and have no weeping. There's a weeping that produces the joy. Uh, and see, without this foundation of joy, now, let me go through it again. Again, if you're bored with it, then you're getting it. Okay, So if you're not totally bored with it yet, you haven't got it yet. If you're bored with it, you got it. Love is the foundation of everything. God is love. Love is the foundation of everything. But love means you want to be together. And that longing to be together, the twinkle in your eye that your beloved sees is what fills him or her with joy. Jesus said, you don't see me, and then you do see me, and then you won't see me again. Uh, but you, you'll, when, I, when you see me again, your joy will be full and the world will not be able to take away your joy. I'll have more to say about that in our next session, but um, notice how much Jesus spends, how much time he spends on joy. Why? Because the love produces the joy. The joy manifests itself in wholeness or peace. And that is the foundation that has to be laid so that God can then begin the work in you of transforming you into Christ-likeness. If you don't have that foundation, the process you would have to go through would be heartrending and destructive. Mine was pretty heartrending and destructive. God did it. He did surgery in me in careful, managed, providentially arranged ways because I was so messed up and there was so little help available. So God can do it without the foundation. If you don't have that foundation, don't think you're hopelessly stuck where you are. God has ways of bringing it about. Philippians 1, six. he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. But I, I think a lot of what we go through is unnecessarily agonizing because so much of what I'm talking about has not been properly addressed. Now, I've mentioned before that I learned maybe too early, or maybe I learned it when I needed to learn it, but because I was involved in so many funerals as a boy because of music. I was connected to many, many funerals before I was 15 years old. And I began to notice things about people's grieving. I noticed that families where there was real bonding and real love sorrowed, but they did not sorrow like those who had no hope. Uh, but those who had difficult rancorous relationships. The manifestation of their grief was heartrending, terrible. And there's lots of reasons for that. One of the reasons was that they come from families where there is no maturing of handling your own emotions. So anything negative just becomes overwhelming for them. But another reason was because there had been no proper closure there was no joy in their relationship. There's now no chance of that joy, and it's it's come to an end, and their grief knows no bounds. My whole point in bringing that up is just to say that grief has 
joy in it when there has been proper handling of things, when there's been a, an understanding, uh, an approach with understanding instead of just slopping emotion on top of emotion. And uh, I know that's a too large a subject to get into, but there's a wonderful quote from Lord of the Rings from Return of the King where they're parting, and there's it's like Shakespeare, parting is such sweet sorrow. Uh, there's a sweetness in the sorrow where there's love. And it says, Tolkien says here, they all laughed and wept. Their hearts wounded with the sweetness of words overflowed, and their joy cut like swords. And they passed into that region where pain and delight flows together, and tears are the very wine of blessedness. I know to some people that may just sound like a little poetic gobbledygook, but every word has meaning. Every statement in that phrase is perfect. I, I wish we had the time to just un, unpack all that's there. But Paul says in Romans twelve fifteen, Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, there's this combining of the process of weeping and joy that works together to bring about an ever-increasing development and maturation of capacity. So it's like tearing down a muscle. When you work out, you're not really doing anything until there's a little bit of exhaustion. There has to be exhaustion. The, the, the muscle has done all it can do, and then it does a little bit more, and it's in doing that little bit more, that tearing, that then produces the increase of musculature. That principle in the muscle is the same principle in our emotions. Uh, that's why we should rejoice when we go through diverse trials and difficulties, knowing that the trying of our faith develops our endurance, which brings about a fullness of joy so that we actually can reach a place, according to Romans chapter 5 and James chapter 1 and John chapter 15 and various other scriptures, that you can reach a place where your joy is so full that nothing can take it away from you. That doesn't mean you don't sorrow. It means that in your sorrow you are completely at rest and peace. Our Lord Jesus walked that out for us under the worst duress in human history at the cross. I love that scene where he, he looks in his mother Mary's eyes, blood everywhere, the crown of thorns borne down into his skull. He's barely able to stand, and he smiles and says to his mother, Mother, don't weep. I'm making all things new. I had a friend whose pastor was a very wise, old, elderly black man. And uh, he walked into his pastor's office under terrible circumstances and he said, I just feel like I can't take another step. And his pastor reached over and grabbed his hand and said, Lord, increase his joy. And he thought later, he said, I didn't need a prayer for joy. I just, I needed strength. And he went back to his pastor and his pastor quoted to him from Nehemiah chapter 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
You didn't need talking to. You didn't need pointers. You didn't. You didn't need a pat on the back or any human wisdom. You you needed an infusion and revelation of joy. And sure enough, that's true. That's what he did need. So, okay, let's review this just for a minute, and then I'll uh, hopefully bore you enough to where you'll really have it, and I won't have to bore you with it anymore. Love is the foundation of everything because God is love. But love expresses itself in a desire to be with the one it loves. The one who is receiving the love is filled with joy when it sees the twinkle in the eye of the giver of love because that twinkle says, he wants to be with me and he's happy that I'm with him. She knows where she belongs. She belongs in the presence of the one whose eye is filled with a twinkle caused by her presence. This produces in us peace. And love, joy, and peace becomes the foundation upon which God begins to build the other fruits of character. Long-suffering, self-control, patient endurance. And these all imply difficulty. You see how weeping and sorrow and joy and peace are all related? Uh, The peace of God is not peace unless it's in the midst of a storm. Anybody can be peaceful when things are peaceful. It's in the midst of the storm. Uh, The love of God is greatest when there's no loving attitudes in the room. The joy of the Lord is greatest when your eyes are full of tears. And the peace of God is greatest when your heart's in under pressure. And so God puts us through these ropes. But you see, love, joy, and peace is the foundation. So you don't try to develop endurance. You don't try to develop have long suffering. You don't try to do any of those things in your own strength because if you do, you'll just become a legalist or a hypocrite or, or both. You'll go, you'll bounce between legalism and hypocrisy. <laughs> I just described many churches, sadly. But where there's real love or real revelation of love, what do you know when you have a real revelation of love? Well, you stay with Jesus. If you know he loves you, then you stay with him. That's why he said, if you abide in me, abiding in him means you stay with him. That's that Greek word that I stressed a while ago about staying, stay, stay put. Don't leave, stay put. And then that gives you the power to uh, begin to be filled with joy. And joy then gives you the peace you need to endure the process. Okay. Father, I pray for everyone listening now. I pray for any person listening who has been so hurt that listening to descriptions of these dynamics just brings pain and they can't listen to it because it upsets them so much and frustrates them so much. I pray for them especially that they will endure and listen and receive, not from me, but from you. And that your Holy Spirit will penetrate every area where there's blockages and bring uh, revelation, bring insight, 
most of all, bring an awareness of your love that begins to go from conscious thinking about it to physically experiencing it. Now, Lord, I know that you don't you don't call us to build on our feelings or our experience, but you sure don't deny us the fact that we are creatures who feel. You created feelings. And so it's not right for us to say, oh, you don't pay attention to feelings. We do pay attention to feelings, but we pay attention to them not enough sometimes. And so if our feelings are sorrowful and hurtful, uh, the longer it takes us to get back, let me just say this, folks, the longer it takes you to get back to joy when you've been hurt, the more immature you are. Or let me say it more positively, the faster you can return to joy, the more mature your love is. The longer it takes you to return to joy when you've had a difficulty or a conflict or had your feelings hurt, the faster you return to joy, the more you're walking in real love and the more mature you are in love. The longer it takes you to to return to joy, the more childish you are. I know this so well. (laughs) Well, we'll talk about that more in our next session. Father, thank you for your word, for your spirit, for your love and your presence with us. Thank you that you are the fountain of all joy. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.